This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. If you could rebuild the animal sheltering system from scratch, design new processes of interacting with the public, how would you help them? Out in the community, in the shelter, how would you help animals? We've got a new model now where we're really focusing on keeping pets and people together on a whole different level. I'm John Dunn. It is Friday, May 22nd. And on this episode of the Best Friends Podcast, we're going to talk about a new approach to animal sheltering that's been proposed and is currently being rolled out in 13 different cities. Everybody that is part of this realizes that it is way bigger than just our communities. That's Dr. Josh Fisher. He's the director of animal services for Charlotte Mecklenburg, North Carolina. They are one of the 13 that are part of this pilot for what's being called the animal social services model. Now, before we go to Charlotte and Josh to hear how they're taking this on, let's talk about the model itself. Dr. Ellen Jefferson, that's likely to be a familiar name. She was determined to end the killing of animals in her community, Austin, Texas. She took on the role of executive director of Austin Pets Alive in 2008 and led that city to no-kill status. Austin has been a leader in this movement ever since. So as you can imagine, other communities look to Ellen and Austin Pets Alive to help them. So they created an educational arm of Austin Pets Alive, and that's American Pets Alive. And it's through that organization that this model has been developed. So we've been talking a lot about this moment in time where there are empty kennels across the country. And um, the COVID nightmare for people has really sort of opened up some doors to be able to think about how we shelter animals and think about it differently. And we've all had ideas about what it should look like if we could have start over, start over completely from scratch and just get rid of our history, last hundred years of history of, of sheltering. But the, we've never had the bandwidth. And so everybody, uh, all the work that I've done and that I, I, most of the organizations that are focused around sheltering have done has really been to try to improve the shelter situation not change the shelter situation. And I think at right now we have an opportunity to um, really think about changing the entire system and make it so that it actually works better for people and for animals. And by people, I mean the staff and volunteers and pet owners that are, that are being um, separated from their pets and people who want to adopt. There's just, you know, the whole community and of course the animals too. Um, so we're, we're trying to move as quickly as possible because we don't know how fast communities are going to open back up and need to use all their kennel space again. That might be happening now. And um, our hope is that at least some things will be able to start in motion and change. So the 11, sorry, the 10 elements are really about trying to help hone in on the specific practices that are going to have to change to uh, embrace the model of social services for animal for animal people. <laughs> we're, we're now calling it the human animal support services model because um, that is maybe a little bit more targeted at what we're trying to do. Social services is so big. I think the easiest way to attack this is let's just go through them, the points one by one, and then we can just have a little chat about them. And then I'd like to talk about next steps. And by the way, we will have a link to these at bestfriends.org slash podcast. So number one, 
the shelter provides emergency medical care and short-term housing for animals with urgent needs. Right. And that is getting at the idea that um, the shelter the shelter has been a catch-all in the past. And we're really looking to help organizations understand and implement the idea that it's more purposeful. So every kennel has a very specific purpose and an, and basically an outcome planned for that animal before the animal's put in it. And so it's not just the catch-all for the community. It is really um, trying to address the emergency needs that can't, can't happen um, quickly enough in the community and also short-term housing for animals with urgent needs, which means, um, you know, people that are, what, let me back up. One of the things that we've noticed with our positive alternatives to shelter surrender program here in Austin is that a lot of people don't actually want to give up their pet, but they have a short-term need that they can't, they can't board their pet through. And so that might be a month of having to visit family and take care of a ailing parent or a couple months of travel for work and they can't get out of it and nobody will take care of their pet. And so having um, a, a place for that to occur that is potentially within the shelter, so kind of thinking about the shelter in a different way for, for holding on to animals and then having those animals have an outcome at the end. So they, they could enter the system if somebody abandoned them, but they, they're really there just for a short term. Okay, here we go. Number two, the public can reach the organization quickly and easily using remote technologies like text, phone, and web chats. Very obvious here. I don't think we should really even talk about this uh, other than I will just say, please, let's do it. Unfortunately, we still have some communities, many communities, and some well-funded ones that are just not there with technology, and it has to be a priority, so I am glad to see this. Now, number three, volunteers are engaged in every area of the organization, including field and outreach services. So what does that mean? That means that people are part of the process at every touch point with animals and people. And so if, um, think about volunteers that could be helping with uh, street teams. There's some communities like Austin that actually has a group of volunteers that do that not in conjunction with the city of Austin, but um, on their own. And it's incredibly effective in helping reunite lost pets with their owners, helping to um, give the uh, whoever's lost their pet uh, help finding that pet, uh, helping to bring food or fencing supplies out to people's houses. So it's kind of this uh, ability to grow this arm of field services and really thinking about even the words field services as um, providing services for pet owners and pets in the field. And we think of it, you know, kind of the draconian way of looking at it is that field services is more about picking up animals and bringing them to the shelter. And of course, that's going to be something that's needed every once in a while. But I think that we could do so much more with allowing people to help other people and also having the field officers do some of that work also, you know, where they're, where they're really doing that more human touch. Listen, Ellen, on paper, the way you just described the field services part totally makes sense on board. You know, when I first read that one sentence, I thought, 
are you going to give me a badge and a truck? Because I don't think I should be trusted with that. Uh, might be some liability issues, but you know, now you explain it. It does make sense. But I do think, you know, as you're trying to kind of push this stuff, it'll be interesting to see how initial reactions are to, you know, that sentence and that idea. Now, number four, telehealth services are available for animal caregivers considering surrender and foster caregivers and finders of animals who may be sick or injured. Yeah, it's, it is a lot of what we're seeing in the human field of medicine. Um, it's, it is mirroring a lot of that where there's this concept of pre-hospitalization and um, what we're talking about here is pre-shelter and um, how can we help prevent those animals from needing to come into the shelter and, um, and in the, you know, as the way we're taking them in now, how do, how do we provide services in a way that people can get what they need? There's a lot of misunderstandings about animal health and what they need and what's an emergency and what's not an emergency. And so I think having a person to be able to talk to is really the the piece that we've been missing. Some people don't even have access to the internet, so they don't have the resources that we think we that they have in order to prevent surrender or bringing a pet back to the shelter. The challenge to so much of this model, from my perspective, Ellen, you know, it's not just the shaking up of our industry, restructuring what we do and getting everybody behind that, which is definitely going to be a challenge, but the I don't know, recalibration, I guess, if that's the right word, of the public, their expectations. And in this case, with number four, their thought process, their reactions to what they need to do in these types of situations. So, you know, their ability to embrace this new definition of these responsibilities. Right. Yeah. It's really trying to push the concept that having animals and people show up in person for all of the problems doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the more we can do that is um, over the telephone or over the internet, that is going to save us time and money in the long run. Number five, animals that physically enter the shelter have outcome pathways identified before or at the time of intake so the in-shelter length of stay is reduced drastically. Yes. And so that is something we're not very good at. We tend to have in, in our industry, we tend to have intake people and then care people and then adoption people or foster people or euthanasia people. And we need to, that process needs to be seamless and more of a flow from intake to outcome. And so every animal has a plan that that plan can be uh, enacted on immediately. The day they come in, the plan starts, and then the next day there's something that needs to get done to get that animal out, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I think that um, our hope, it, it, of course, one of the main reasons that doesn't happen now in a really great way, especially in the the shelters um, that are that are tasked with having to take in all the animals from the public, is just the volume. And so by having fewer animals, hopefully, in the shelter to begin with, one, by reducing length of stay through this type of flow management, and then also by only housing the animals that actually need to be in a shelter, then there should be enough bandwidth to be able to do this flow process well. Number six, the vast majority of pets are housed in foster homes rather than shelter kennels, and most foster pets are adopted directly from foster homes. 
So, you know, we've seen this massive response during the pandemic. We asked the public to help. They helped. Shelters were cleared. We all know the success there. So obviously it's logical to say, let's just always act like we're in a pandemic. But the question of how many fostered animals will be returned as life returns to quote unquote normal is still out there. That question is still out there. We have data coming in, but I think still too early to tell how the economy will impact. Again, it's just a lot to it. Right. So the I think that the key takeaways during COVID for me, looking at this more uh, you know, nationally, is that we were shocked by the, the response of the public, but that response has always been there. There are communities that are fostering massive numbers of animals on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. And um, it's not an anomaly. The, the thing that we're missing when we talk about this windfall of fosters that came forward is the work it takes to keep a base of people like that in your organization. There's always going to be a percent of people that come in and, and then a percent that leave. But if you're not actively recruiting and you're not actively supporting those people, then you're not going to have as much success in keeping a huge number of people on your team. And so I think that we just have to think about this differently. There's a lot of organizations that have a foster coordinator who's also the volunteer coordinator, who's also the transfer partner coordinator. And that is not sustainable when you're talking about having 6,000, 10,000, 15,000 animals in foster throughout the course of a year. It's a, a major undertaking and it needs major support. And we just need to think about how we allocate our org chart resources towards that, our financial resources towards that, and how we orient ourselves to more customer service oriented procedures that we don't we don't typically have to in our day to day to have a shelter operate. But what we're talking about now is having people associated with almost every animal that's in your care. And that means that we have to change the way that we're orienting our services more towards people and still help the animals, but make this more about helping people help your animals. Just for clarity's sake, I am not necessarily against or for any of these things. I'm a, just merely a neutral podcast <laughs> host, but I do, I, I, and I, I'm sure there are much harder questions that I'm throwing uh, with things that I uh, don't know, but I do think there are a lot of questions. So I'm doing my best to kind of challenge you a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. So much more interesting. <laughs> Let's see where we end up, though, Ellen. We may not talk ever again. <laughs> so the the foster thing, you said there were communities that are doing this at levels like that. Do you, off the top of your head, can you just name a couple? Yes. So um, and so I know that Pima County has, a, I think they're at 5,500 fosters, animals placed in foster a year. Um, El Paso is over 6,000, I believe, and El Paso Animal Services. Uh, Austin Pets Alive, we had last year 6,200 animals go into foster. So there's huge numbers going, and um, there's no shortage of people who want to help. I don't, I think that that is a, when we say that to ourselves, it's just a, it's an unknown that we think we have the answer for. Uh, one of the studies that we did in Austin with a group from Harvard, and then we did a different study, but same concept with University of Denver, is trying to evaluate the market um, demand for adoptions. So this wasn't around fostering, but it's the same concept. We, we tend to talk our, ourselves out of thinking that we could help more animals because there's not enough adopters. 
especially on the nonprofit side, thinking about how many animals we should be bringing in, say, from other communities for our, our community to adopt. And what they found is that there's five times more, at least five times more adopters out there than we, uh, as the whole of Austin, have animals for. And so we're not capitalizing on what is out there and who is willing. Those are people willing to adopt and wanting to adopt from a shelter, not people that are dead set on uh, buying or don't want a pet at all. And so um, we we need to start thinking more like business and how we're going to find those people and get them to join the ranks of everybody else on our team trying to help these animals. And we're not very effective at it. And we just need to get better. It's just a challenge. It's just something that we need to get a lot better at and recruiting people and pairing them up with animals. On the foster home side, I feel like there's just so much opportunity to increase not just the number of foster homes, but supporting foster parents so they can foster for longer. So someone during the pandemic, a first-time foster, they got to go back to work and they say, hey, I'm done. Here's the animal. Well, why? Why do you think that? And what can we do to support you so you can continue fostering for us? Well, I think it'd be the, you know, the first thing, data and research just comes from asking people questions and start there. And it'd be really good to start surveying people to find out if they're willing to help after the pandemic, there's going to be a percent of people probably, you know, I would guess probably 30% of people can't continue once their work starts back up again. But the vast majority of people are doing this because it was just the right time to do something that they wanted to do. And so that means they still want to do it. And we just have to be able to work with them to make it a reality. How many foster coordinators in Austin for those 6,000? Um, we have about nine. And a, a part of that is because we have very specialized um, foster animals. We have, we take in a huge number of orphan kittens that need to be bottle fed. And so 2,500 of those 6,200 are bottle baby kittens. And we take in a lot of dogs that have um, various and assorted behavioral or medical problems that require a lot of support. For an average shelter that is taking in a, an actual like um, steady a stream of animals from all extremes. It's probably doesn't even need that many people. And we're, we're learning a lot. We don't have anybody to pattern after. So we're learning a lot about where we can be more efficient and use technology to help us to be more efficient and um, help more animals with the number of people we've got. But yeah, it's, it's a whole department. Uh, a whole department indeed. Uh, and I think I speak on behalf of at least some people listening to this when I say that managing, like what is that, 6,000 divided by nine, uh, 650 foster homes per coordinator. I mean that, you know, especially with a lot of them being challenging animals, as you say, yet again, thrilled that I get to sit here uh, totally in awe of uh, the people that do that kind of work. So now number seven, Animal caregivers can access pet support services, including housing, medical and behavioral support, as well as food and supplies to help keep the human-animal family together. Yes. And so if you think about one of the things that happened in COVID is that um, animals were sort of separated from the shelter, right? And so there's animals out in the world right now that would normally be coming into the shelter, and that's causing some angst in the communities. And I think that what we're finding by trying to map, if you will, out what resources are available for average citizen to access, 
there's not a lot of clarity. It is a, not a transparent process at all. You have to be, even, even what I've found is that if you find an animal, you have to be an animal welfare insider to understand what you need to do to find, to get that owner animal back to its owner. And um, that's not, that, that is setting ourselves up for this repetitive cycle of every single animal out in the world having to come to the shelter. And so if we can open up the gateway to uh, communication and information that people need to help themselves, they're going to do it. And that might mean that we need to create some resources that might not exist, but I bet we'd be surprised at how many resources actually already exist that we're just not leveraging in any way as a community-wide effort. So that's really what this is about. It's really making everything accessible. And the first way to make things accessible is letting people know that they exist. Okay, number eight, animal services personnel operate as trained case managers, helping people keep their pets, providing resources, and support to struggling pet owners and assisting owners who need to rehome their animals. Right. And so this goes back to that customer service piece. And customer is not the right word. It really is case manager. Um, we're really trying to instill the idea that the people on the other side of the phone really need support. And when they call, let's say they call the shelter, and our shelter is guilty of this, call the shelter and they talk to somebody and then they email somebody else and then they get a call back from a third person and nobody's saying the same thing. And so it's really, really confusing to the person that's getting the advice or the assistance about what they're supposed to be doing. And even in the best organized shelters, there's going to be a disconnect with information when multiple people are handling the same customer, if you will, or case. And so um, the intent of this is to help streamline that process and make it more effective by creating a, almost a relationship with the person that needs help so that they can be directed more effectively to what they need to be able to rehome their own pet or keep their pet. Um, we want to kind of bridge that knowledge gap, not only making things accessible online, but also through working with a person to help handhold through the process. And that could be one touch, but it also might be 20 touches with the same person. Uh, these here at the end, Ellen, you know, they speak to this approach of people and how we relate to them. You know, we had Scott Giacopo on the podcast, episode three, I think. But he and I, we talked about the concept of how much we've distanced public services from the public. And, you know, using cops, right? Uh, it used to be neighborhood police officers. You know, you knew your officer by name. If you needed help, you talked to Officer Bob. And now, obviously not the case. And it's not for this podcast, but the <laughs> loss of that and this adversarial situation we have, it's just not the right relationship with the community. So the more I think we can return public services to healthy relationships with the public, we're all just going to be better off. Totally agree. And, and the entire intent behind the 10 elements is really about the idea. And I don't even think it's an idea. I think that we um, have some knowledge of this that probably upwards of 80% of animals that are entering shelters have somebody that, that cares for them. And there may be an ability to help that person more effectively than we can help the animal without that person. And so I, I think we'll, if we embrace this model, we'll see a reduction in the number of animals that need our help in a, a comprehensive way instead of all the animals needing our help in a comprehensive way. And um, 
these feel like a lot of work, but they're actually less work than what we're currently providing to our communities. Number nine, the organization operates a comprehensive loose pet reunification service to successfully send most roaming pets home without them having to enter the shelter system. Yes, and that goes back to the idea that um, it's not clear what needs to happen to reunite pets. And I, I don't know if you saw that we, the city of Austin did some surveying of people who found animals. And these are uh, granted only the people that found the animal and kept it for the three days, which is legal here in Austin. And I know it's not everywhere. But of the people that elected to do that and not bring the animal to the shelter, those people had a three times higher chance of reuniting the dog, a dog with its owner than if, if for the animals that come into the shelter instead of staying with the finder. And for cats, it was something like 30 times higher. So there's a tremendous value in keeping the dogs and cats where they're found to try to reunite them with their owner. And that's with no help from the city and no service other than posting them on the, the, um, the city shelter's website. But the most effective way that people were finding owners is through Nextdoor and through Chips. And um, what was the other one? Through, uh, I think the third was the Pet Harbor. So going through the city's website. So I think we can do a lot remotely that didn't exist 20 years ago before we had the internet everywhere, but, um, but now it does. And so why aren't we using it? Why aren't we helping people just walk down the street and knock on doors and find out who owns this dog or cat? Uh, okay, so number 10, human social services agencies, rescue groups, and other community partners work closely with the animal services organization recognizing people and their pets as a family unit. Yep, and that that is, I think, necessary as we embark on this because we've all purposely become experts on animals, but we're not experts on people. And I think if we, if we can align more closely with what's happening on the human social services front, then we can support people in a better way through their pet ownership or pet rehoming, um, all the things we've been talking about, lost and found, and understand more of the human world that goes along with that. And so when we think about the human support services and then this human animal support services, it really is being able to um, identify on both sides, identify things that the other one would probably want to be helping with and um, doing that more in a more collective spirit rather than, you know, you have animal services who who currently goes out for cruelty and neglect and things like that. And then you have on the human, human support services, helping people with chronic illness or hospice or, you know, whatever else. But the, for some reason in our minds, we put them in two separate boxes, even though animals and people are sharing the same household. And there's probably a lot of overlap that both agencies need to really be understanding and working together on. You know, Ellen, you talked about both agencies there. And, you know, listen, it's not about blame. That doesn't matter. But, for example, homeless shelters, most do not allow pets. And people will always choose pet. Yeah. So let's try to meet people where they are 
give them what they need. It goes both ways. We need to respect people more, and I think other people really need to understand and respect the human-animal bond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's such an opportunity to bring the community together during COVID and talk about this stuff and develop a new path forward. We've never had the opportunity to do that before. So Ellen, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am not an economist. <laughs> However, you know, the financial picture looks bleak. Yes. So what does it mean? Uh, it means, although we don't know the scale to what scale, people are going to need to rely on services. Yep. They, are, they will need help and we have to meet them where they are. Yes, totally agree. It's going to be a nightmare if we don't. Our shelters, even if even for the best shelters, they're not equipped to deal with what's coming if nothing changes. So these are uncomfortable ideas. Are they? Okay, well, we talk through them and maybe uncomfortable isn't the right word. Let me let me see if I can string together a complete thought on this. So we've made incredible progress. 733,000 animals killed last year, down from 17 million 35 years ago. Yeah. We still have thousands of communities that are not at 90%, some big communities that have large life-saving gaps, right? Mm -hmm. And we know the programs to get them there, which I think, and tell me if I'm an idiot or not, but the programs we know are on the whole, maybe easier to implement. So it, they may be easier to pitch to the public, to staff, and then these things the, the proposal is here, and as you talked about, the 10, they're woven together in a way that it may be difficult to do one without the other without the other. So if we're looking at this holistically, it, you know, it's an entire restructure of local government processes in some cases. And so, yeah, they're not small changes, and they may have to be in concert with the nonprofit and private sector. So, you know, we're still struggling to get communities shifted to no-kill programming that I think has a lower barrier to entry. Well, I think what's really been fascinating during this process and all the conversations with it we've been having and seeing that, you know, 400, 500 groups come together and talk on these, um, we do these weekly um, Zoom meetings. And it's been fascinating to see how, how different everybody is. It's not the same. It's not the people that you would expect um, from one camp or another. It's a wide range of people. And I think that that indicates, and what we're hearing it indicates, is that um, this is bigger than all the arguments we've been having in the past and all the differences we've had in the past. And so specifically things, thinking about um, no-kill or 90% versus not, socially conscious or something like that, that those arguments go away if the system changes. Like there's no purpose. They're just a reaction to the system that is there. And um, there, I think that this is this opportunity to fundamentally change the way shelters operate, um, not the way shelters operate, the way that animal services operates in our communities allows us to have different conversations and get away from the old conversations that really weren't Take, getting us anywhere. We had the camps fighting against each other constantly, and I've certainly been guilty of that. And I think at this moment in time, it's fascinating to see everybody agree that it needs to change, that the, the old system of government sheltering, no matter which camp you're in, is horrible. It, you, know, you have shelters that are taking in 30,000 animals plus every year. It never changes. And so it's not going to change incrementally. It's not going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? How, when does that change? And so now we have an opportunity to really change the way we work, which then changes the, the overwhelmingness of everything that we've been doing. What's the next step here, Ellen? 
Uh, we heard from Josh there in the beginning of the uh, this episode down in Charlotte. You said it's not one size fits all. So what's happening now? We're piloting this in 13 cities across the country. And we are hoping to really do a deep dive on data and understand really clearly what's working and where tweaks are still needed. And, you know, we've never, uh, this is this is all new. Um, even though the concepts are not new at all, the concepts are, they've been around forever that, you know, animals, we can help people, we can help animals in a different way. The concept of trying to actually institute that in a major city is uh, new. And so we plan to be very specific in trying to get the data that we need and understand the, how to measure success and um, how do we make sure that we're doing right by animals and people um, and not just closing the doors and all that. So it's it's a lot of work, but it's really exciting to see. And I think um, there's a wide gamut of organizations that'll make it really interesting to see what kind of results we can get. Okay, so quiz time. Name all 13 and maybe explain a little bit of the selection process? Um, we So we went through a process of talking to different communities and understanding what they're hoping to accomplish. And so we've tried to choose cities that ha- are really motivated to make sure that it happens. And those communities are um, San Diego, California, Fresno, Oakland. So we kind of got the West Coast is mostly in California. In Texas, we have El Paso and Houston, and in um, the Carolinas, Greenville, South Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, Cabot, Arkansas, Washington, D.C., uh, New York City, and um, Atlanta, Georgia, Kansas City, Missouri. So we've got a, a wide uh, group of people from the whole, all sectors of the U.S. And I think it's going to be um, really fascinating to see how it shakes out. But there's just so much enthusiasm for it because it is, it's like everybody can sigh in relief at being able to do things the way we've always wanted to do it. Now, if memory serves there, I heard quite a few cities that have very high save rates. Is that intentional because you need communities that are just high performing with alignment? So you already have that buy-in. So it's about who can pilot this more easily? Right. No, it's not around. It's not based on the live release rate at all. It's just based on the interest and willingness to um, get the job done. And so I think that that is also unique because that's not something that we've ever operated in that in that realm of um, not thinking in terms of live release. The reason that the 13 are chosen is that we believe that they can they can push this to for to fruition and we need them to so that we can understand clearly what the data is telling us about the success or not of some of the policies and procedures and then that makes it much more replicable across the country in addition to the 13 there's about 20 cities that are signing up as a tier 2 community and what that means is that they are self implementing but with as much information as we can give them from tier 1 and we're still um, adding people to that list. We want to be as inclusive as possible because, we, again, we only have this short period of time to make it happen. And so we don't know how short it is because we don't know how long COVID's going to go. Um, but we believe strongly that we have an opportunity and we should strike while the iron's hot. Okay. All right. So let's talk cash money. Okay. <laughs> and I have two questions on this. One is uh, we don't have endless amounts of money. And when I say we, I mean 
Best Friends, ASPCA, American Pets Alive, Maddie's Fund, other foundations, I mean, Rachel Ray. And ordinarily, I don't think my brain would go here because we fund good ideas. I do think we can grow the pot. Like, there's not a limit to what we can fundraise, but this isn't six months ago. We mentioned the economy. So how do we set this as a project to fund against other things right now? And then the second part is from a shelter director position, from leadership, budget cuts are coming, in many cases already have. So why this over other things? I don't think that this is very costly, even from an organization um, point of view, organizing, sorry, organizing on the American Pets Alive side. We're working together with a lot of organizations that are coming together with their time and energy and brains to pull this off. And so our costs are relatively low as we go into implementation and there may need to be, you know, and COVID makes everything less expensive because there's not a lot of travel between cities to be able to help each other. So we're having to figure out how to do that remotely. But um, I think that our biggest costs are going to be around uh, marketing potentially and helping the communities understand what is happening and how they can help and not to be afraid of the change. Um, and around some of the some of the training and teaching, but really, we're not talking about a ton of money when you think about how much um, the industry costs to make any kind of shift. Um, so it's it's hopefully going to be very manageable. From the shelter director's point of view of why, why now when I've got other needs, I think that our hope during COVID is that there are there's a large number of shelter directors that have that moment because their shelters are not full. And if they can keep them not 100% full long enough to implement, then hopefully they can do it while they're there. But that's also the beauty of this coalition and creating a group around this is that there's a working environment and people can work together to get it done and help each other so that we're not all having to create the same protocols and same trainings and same um, customer service scripts. You know, we can actually work together to create those and then implement them out. And it's always safer and easier to work in numbers than it is by yourself. Ellen, this has been great, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And listen, I hope it comes across here. I do believe in this. I've just been trying to ask some good, hard-hitting questions, man. But, you know, listen, the center of this, that human-animal bond, that's everything. And we've just not embraced that in the way that we should. And that's not an indictment there. We've just been doing what we know how to do in the best way possible with the circumstances we've been given, right? So... But, you know, leading with the core belief of that human-animal bond, I don't think you're ever going to go wrong. Okay, so before I let you go, did we miss anything? Um, I don't think so. I feel like we covered, yeah, a, a great deal of information. And I, I think it, it feels really overwhelming. And in my mind, I, I think of us as implementing three three major programs that are new. And that is around um, the Reuniting Lost and Found Pets, Lost Pets with People, um, doing rehoming, self-rehoming programs, and then also creating more resources for pet owners. And so when you think about it, it's just three things. And we're already doing some level of that probably everywhere. And it's just expanding on those and making them so that they're actually having a measurable difference in shelter intake so that that staff can then be reorganized and used externally. As you just heard from Dr. Jefferson, there are 13 communities that have signed up to be part of this pilot program. We are the only metropolitan city in the state of North Carolina. That's Dr. Josh Fisher. 
He's been working in the animal welfare world in one capacity or another for 20 years. I started super young. I um, I look, you know. <laughs> Josh is currently the director of animal services for Charlotte Mecklenburg, North Carolina. And he's very smart and obviously funny. And, you know, two decades of this work, no matter whether you were truly young or not when you started, it gives you perspective. I've gotten to see a lot of the shift. You know, we talk about the old model and I got to see that. I was in shelters um, when... It was very much a catch and kill. You know, there were staff members who spent all day, every day in the euthanasia suite. The live release rate when Josh took over was 52%. When I first came to Charlotte, um, we had just started kind of turning the corner towards really focusing on what our live outcomes were going to be and what we could do to save more lives. Now, since then, he's been able to change the culture from one of fear and unwillingness to try new things to where they are today. It was really a philosophical shift in a lot of ways. Um, and then bumping up our foster program, bumping up our spay-neuter programs, focusing on you know neonatal kittens and getting them into foster homes. I've got a phenomenal management team here who really just is willing to try anything. And listen, he's not kidding about that. When I talked with Josh, he told me that he was having his management team go through each of the 10 elements and ranking them from easiest to implement to hardest, and that they'd be meeting later that day to talk them through. So I said, hey, will you record that meeting and send me the file? And he said, yes. Yeah, I apologize in advance about the recording. I'm sure there was a lot of swearing in it because that's just how my team rolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want this podcast to have an explicit content rating, so I will be choosy about what to share. I gave you guys all a copy of the coalition model. Listening to Josh's team go through this is very interesting. Candidly, across the board, everybody thought that the one, the third one down, the one that involves outside of our organization, <laughs> was going to be the hardest thing. No buddy. doubt. Number 10, having all of the social service agencies, rescue groups, other partners working together. That's like the unicorn. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I agree. Listen, she's right about that. You can call it the unicorn or holy grail, but that's the ultimate goal. And it is going to be hard to achieve that level of successful integration. Getting everyone to work efficiently together and nicely will be a major hurdle, a big cultural shift. And another challenge right now is that this is a time of economic uncertainty. We have not seen our budget cut yet. We are bracing for that. My approach right now as part of this pilot program is reallocating existing resources. So we're taking existing staff members and we're shifting their focus. Uh, we are taking programs and we're trying to find ways to find efficiencies within those programs. You know, if we can reduce the number of animals physically coming into our shelter, that means that we are able to reallocate the direct care staff to help with other pieces of this puzzle. We already know that all communities are different, so there won't be a perfect blueprint to follow for implementation. Charlotte does have a bit of a head start. We've got a lot of social services agencies. We've got a lot of nonprofit agencies, nonprofit partners, both on the human public services side and the animal services side um, that are really excited and willing to work together. Next one was volunteers are engaged in every area of the organization, including field and outreach services. Now, the team had some initial resistance to that one. Same for me when I first read the sentence. But we just need to do what we do best. Think of solutions. You know, transporting <laughs> dogs to the adoption center? Yeah. That's awesome. That's a field work volunteer-based thing. That, that's that's wonderful. I think one of the biggest things is overcoming that initial fear of trying something new, right? Um, the only way that we're going to grow is to change.
American Pets Alive is looking for input on this model, and you can sign up your community to be in the second tier, a supported but self-guided version. For more information, head to our website, bestfriends.org podcast. Thank you to Ellen and Josh. You know, this is another story that we'll be following and definitely be talking about in future episodes. Thank you to the producers of the Best Friends podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. Do you have an idea for the show? Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.